Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Just a few hours before George Floyd was murdered, Christian Cooper was birdwatching in Central Park when he was the victim of a white woman who attempted to weaponize race and policing against him. The video of the event went viral, and luckily Christian was able to leave the area before police arrived and is here with us today. His new book, Better Living Through Birding, Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World, is now available. Please don't come close to me. Sir, I'm asking you to stop recording me. Please don't come close to me. Please take your phone off. Please don't come close to me. Please, please call the cops. The first time we are seeing the moments leading up to the arrest of George Floyd. Newly released videos from the body cameras worn by two former Minneapolis officers are shedding new light into the death that set off protests around the world. Birds are important just because they exist. I think um, we definitely need to take a step back and stop assigning a human value to things that are sharing the same world with us. They're important just because they're here. There are two narratives when it comes to Black people in a narrative in America. One is one of triumph, of being connected to nature and having a deep, wonderful relationship with nature that was in service of how we lived our daily lives. Hi, I'm Christian Cooper, and I'm fighting to save the planet from environmental disaster, criminal injustice, and bullies who want to turn the clock back to the 1950s. Sorry, not sorry. Christian, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you. And I want to get to your book and your story. But before we do, will you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are? Sure. My name is Christian Cooper. I am a lifelong birder. And birder is a preferred term these days, but it's the same as bird watcher. I've been doing it since I was about nine or 10 years old. My home base is New York City, and so my stomping ground is Central Park, particularly in the spring. And other than that, I am a writer and editor and uh, activist, a kind of foot soldier for a lot of causes that I believe in very deeply, from queer rights to uh, justice and inclusion for African Americans, marginalized people in general. There's no underdog that I can't fall in love with. And how did you come to love birdwatching? Are you from New York originally? I was born in Manhattan. I grew up in the suburbs on Long Island. Nature was always big in our household. But with me, for some reason, it, it happened to take the very specific form of birds. 
I think part of it was I built a bird feeder when I was a kid and some woodshop class and I didn't know what to do. And I'm like, I don't know what to build a footstool or a bird feeder. So I went with the bird feeder, thank God. Otherwise I might be a podiatrist. And I put it up in the backyard and I filled up the feeder with the seed. And then all of a sudden there were these black birds with a red patch on the wing coming to the feeder. And I was so excited. I was like, oh my God, I've discovered a new species of crow. This is me as like a nine-year-old. And then eventually I learned, no, they're red-winged blackbirds, which to this day remains one of my favorite birds. I love that so much. Where I live, I have woodpeckers and all sorts of birds that I don't even know what they are. But also in our area, we have this bizarre, I don't even know how to describe it, but there are birds that were pets that got out. It's like cockatoos and cockatiels that just roam freely. We have peacocks. And from what you're telling me, I'm guessing you live somewhere in the LA area, because I know there's peacocks roaming in that zone. And also that's where a lot of the escaped parrots can survive because of the climate. Yes, I'm actually I'm about 40 miles outside of Los Angeles, but close enough. But we live in this very natural community with oak trees. It's a horse community. So there is lots of acreage and greenery and mountains. We also have mountain lions and coyotes and scary things like that, but we do have just a beautiful population of birds. So I completely get it. Scary things, but cool things, because you can learn to live with them and coexist. You just got to be smart about it. I will give you a hot tip. If you want to know what's in your yard or in your vicinity, there is a free app called Merlin put out by the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. Full disclosure, I am on their advisory board these days, but they have put out these amazing technologies using AI and all of that. And what Merlin does is you put it on your phone, you walk out your back door, you turn it on, and it will tell you from the sounds that it picks up what birds are in your area. That is awesome. Yeah, it's great. And it makes people like me obsolete. Because I spent years training my ears. You know, you plunk me down in any woods in the Northeast, and I can tell you exactly what's there based on what I hear. And now I've spent years training myself on this, and now Merlin makes me, you know. Christian, that is really cool. I'm going to do that. I'm going to download it right after we're done. So on the day that George Floyd was murdered, you were birdwatching in Central Park and had an encounter in Central Park that changed the course of your life. Tell us about that encounter. Basically, it was a run-in between a dog walker and a birder in a part of Central Park called the Ramble. That kind of conflict between a dog walker and a birder is the second oldest story of the Ramble. I won't say what the first oldest story of the Ramble is, but you can guess. But when that happened, that's all it was until it became something else. Please call the cops. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Please tell them whatever you like. I'm sorry, I'm in the ramble, and there is a man, African-American, he has a bicycle helmet. He is recording me and threatening me and my dog. There is an African-American man, I am in He is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. And my I'm sorry, I can't hear you either. I'm being threatened by a man in the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. And what it became was a window into the racial undercurrent that plagued this country 
to this day. And the reason why it transformed was because there is a long history, sad, sorry history of unjustified accusations made by white women against black men that has led to a whole slew of horrors, most notably the murder of Emmett Till. So this history is all there. So you would figure by 2020, we would have evolved past that. Actually, us Black people know better. We live daily knowing that we haven't evolved past that. But because of the way this situation went down, I happened to be recording with my cell phone. And so it was there for everybody to see exactly how this thing happens and how it works. And that it was happening in the middle of New York City, which is a liberal bastion. That it was coming from presumably somewhat progressive woman, because she never used any ethnic slur. She said African-American. She used proper terminology. But what she did was she said, I'm going to call the police and tell them an African-American man is threatening my life. And that was her attempt to get leverage in our conflict over her dog being off the leash. And because it was caught on video, my sister put it on Twitter. (laughs) Oh, God bless my sister. Um, She was all over it. She was understandably outraged. But she knew, and I agreed, that this was something people needed to see so that they would know that this still happened, that this undercurrent of racial bias is very much permeates our society to this day. What made the whole thing metastasized, if I can use that word, is the fact that it happened on the morning of the very same day that George Floyd in the afternoon would be murdered by a white cop placing his knee on his neck relentlessly for seconds and seconds while is it three or four other cops stood around and did nothing. Those two events juxtaposed gave that first incident, which, you know, by comparison is nothing, it's a scuffle but it gave it a larger life and made it a window into the racial bias that then was acted out by a cop with fatal consequences. For my listeners who did not see this video, which went viral, I want to break it down really clearly for them. First, you were observing the law and the woman you encountered was not. Is that right? That's correct. It's a park regulation and it's clearly posted. There's a sign that says, in the ramble, dogs must be on the leash at all times. And she wasn't having it. And you asked her to follow the law, and she refused, correct? I waited until actually she was standing right next to the sign, because it always helps when, you know, the sign is right there. And she said, oh, the dog runs are closed, and he needs his exercise. Which is true. The dog runs were closed because of COVID. It was that horrible time in COVID, particularly here in New York City, the epicenter of COVID at the time where we didn't know how it really was spread. We didn't have vaccines. We didn't know if there was going to be any light at the end of the tunnel. I love how empathetic you are and that you're finding something that would give her a reason to act that way, which, by the way, she then threatened to call the police and tell them that there was an African-American man threatening her and her dog. 
And then she'd call the police and report the situation. And basically just weaponizing police violence against Black men and aiming it directly at you. What was most interesting to me is that when she said it to me. So it was clearly, because I'm now at that time, I was what, 57 years old. And I knew that I was an African-American man. I didn't need her to tell me that I'm an African-American man. She says, I'm going to call the police and tell them an African-American man is threatening my life. So it was an attempt to intimidate me into complying with her wishes and into submission. And that was my moment of decision. What was I going to do in response to this? And when that moment happened, my mind went to Philando Castile. And ironically, the Philando Castile incident happened in Minneapolis, in the Minneapolis area, just like the George Floyd incident would happen later the day of the incident with me. Philando Castile was driving in his car and got pulled over for some minor traffic infraction. Good morning, Robin. Another fatal police shooting, a traffic stop turned deadly, caught on tape, igniting anger and concern about police use of force. A new video emerging this morning of another police shooting last night in Minnesota. We're waiting for a back. I will, sir. No worries. I will. Viewed more than one million times before being taken down on Facebook. The video shows a traffic stop turned deadly. 32-year-old Philando Castile, along with his girlfriend and her child, pulled over last night, the beginning of the incident not on tape. But Castile was shot, his arm bloodied, the woman in shock, but continuing to live stream the situation on Facebook. In the video, she says that Castile had a license to carry a firearm. She says she warned the officer that he would be reaching to his pocket to get his ID. The officer appears agitated. Told to get his hand off he had, you told him to get his ID, sir, and his driver's license. I don't think anybody even remembers what it was. He was driving next to his girlfriend's, I think, four-year-old daughter was sitting in the back seat. And Philando Castile did everything that Black mothers tell their sons you're supposed to do in an encounter with the cops in order to come out of it alive. He kept his hands on the steering wheel. He was respectful to the cop. He volunteered to the cop. Just so you know, I have a handgun in the car. It is registered. I am licensed to carry. I just want you to know. And that cop shot that man dead in front of that little girl sitting in the back seat. And if not for the fact that his girlfriend was live FaceTiming what was happening, it might have gone under the radar. As it was, that cop was never charged with anything. Let me clarify that. I can't remember if he was charged or not, but he definitely was not convicted of anything. The cop went free. Philando Castile died. And when that happened, and the reason why it was in my head at that moment in the park was because I thought to myself, this man did everything he was supposed to do. And I kept turning over what happened to him and thinking, what could he have done differently so that he would come out of this alive? And there was nothing. There was nothing. And so at that moment, I just decided, you know what? I'm not going to twist myself into a pretzel so that some person who's got preconceptions about my skin complexion can feel comfortable. I am going to do what any similarly situated white person would do in this situation. I am not going to comply in some manner that is other than what they would do. And I'm not going to participate in my own dehumanization. I'm not going to make this easy. So at that point, I'm just like, all right, I had decided I was going to record until that dog was on the leash, and that's what I was going to keep doing. And that's what I did. 
And then she had to decide what she was going to do in response. And she did. She basically pulled the pin on the grenade of race and lobbed it at me or tried to lob it at me. And instead it blew up in her face. What are you somatically feeling in that moment? What's going on in your body? Is it anxiety? Is it rage? What does it feel like to be in that situation and be in your body? Anxiety through the roof? Because, you know, I've lived my whole life as a Black man in America. I know how badly this can go for me. So that's why there was that split second of decision-making of, gee, do I stop recording and apologize and beg her to say, no, no, it's fine. Let your dog run off the leash. Forget the rules and hope this all goes away. Or do I stick to my gun? And I've watched the video and I suggest everybody do a Google search and watch this video because on her 911 call, she put on quite a show. She's panting and making herself sound terrified. And yet at no time was she threatened. And she actually approaches you in the video. I don't even know what the word is. Bizarre. Heartbreaking. What does it say about us that people will put on this kind of performance for police and not think twice about it? It's a sad commentary on the state of race relations in our country that we haven't really made all the progress we would hope. I'm not arguing that we're still back in the 1950s. And also a sad commentary on police. That's the thing, is that I mentioned this in the book when I sort of break down how I felt about the whole incident and its aftermath, which is that you will hear tirelessly from people in authority, oh, it's a few bad apples, when they refer to cops who do something awful. And that's just not the truth. They may feel obligated to say it, but it's not the truth. The truth is that cops, everybody else, have been raised in the same toxic racial stew that all of us have exposed to the same awful influences, subconscious influences that all of us have. They carry that same baggage as everybody else, you, me, everybody. The difference is that they are given a gun and they are empowered to use deadly force and physical harm on other people. So when they act on those biases, it invariably leads to physical harm or death for African-Americans. And that's why these things keep happening. I wish I had an easy answer. I don't. If I did, I'd probably have a Nobel Peace Prize and whatever. But I think it's important that we recognize that's what's happening because that's the first step towards maybe finding a solution to this problem is recognizing it's not a few bad apples. Sure, there are those bad apples, but it can be the most seemingly ordinary cop who acts in a split second on those unconscious biases in a way that causes physical or deadly harm to an African-American. That's why police departments have started issuing tasers is because there is a concern about the number of shootings, the number of people who die in encounters with police. And if you are black in this country, it, police shootings is a pandemic because the rate of black death by shooting is larger than the rate of Americans' death from coronavirus. I'm fascinated with how people react in certain situations only because this is what I do for a living is I'm an actor and to study people's reactions is kind of part of my job. So at the same time that she was acting in her panting, you were so incredibly calm, which I imagine also has to be some kind of performance that you 
felt like you needed to put on to try and preserve your own safety. How were you able to do that? Was it just instinctual in that moment? You're going to laugh at me. You're going to laugh so hard. And it's there in the book. If you read about my childhood and my nerd obsessions, one of the most formative things in my whole life was the original Star Trek with Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock. I know you're like, where is he going with this? Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock. I knew I was queer from like the age of five. When you know that, you have to keep yourself on lock and key if you want to survive to Delta. And certainly back then, now it's a different story in some parts of the world and some parts of the country for kids coming up. They can be more open. But back then in the 70s, no, there was no way you could be openly gay. And Mr. Spock was my hero because here he was, he had this trouble. He was a Vulcan who was supposed to have total emotional control, but he had this troublesome human half that was always trying to come out, those emotions. And I had to keep myself under careful control and lock and key. So Mr. Spock was my hero because nobody would find out about the queer kid in me. I was never going to let it slip. I wasn't going to let it out. Mr. Spock being my icon for my whole life means that my go-to in a stressful situation is to, okay, emotions on lockdown, act just purely rationally. Sometimes I don't succeed. (laughs) But fortunately, in that moment, I was like, all right, my anxiety is through the roof. Time to summon the inner Mr. Spock, lock down the emotions, just act rationally. It served you well in that moment, for sure. But hopefully, in other moments in your life, you allow yourself to feel your emotions, because I do think that is really important. And I think that African-Americans, their emotions have been suppressed for too long. And I think there is a need to know how hurtful those experiences are for Black people in America. You develop a thick skin. You have to if you're going to make it through. Though I think I see so much, certainly here in New York City, so many mentally disturbed people and too many of them black and brown people. And I wonder sometimes if it's not just the collective pressures of the stuff we're subjected to that sometimes pushes them over the edge. The one thing I always found interesting is people when the aftermath of the incident would say, oh, I'm sorry you had to go through that trauma. How are you doing? And I'm like, trauma? What trauma? It's like, it would take way more than that to traumatize me. And she simply did not have that kind of power over me or the situation. Nature is for everybody. And it doesn't belong to any one group of people. It doesn't belong to anybody, actually. But it's there for all of us to enjoy and to partake of. And that's more important now than ever, I think, in an age of COVID and so many stresses. You get out into the natural world. And suddenly, again, I talk about this in the book, how it was so important for me to be able to lose myself in the wild or in some semblance of the wild and how it gets you out of your own head and your own myopic problems and instead turns you outward and gets you thinking about, you know, oh, look, there's this particular kind of tree. Oh, it's blooming early this year. Oh, and look, it's feeding this kind of bird. And it just totally changes your whole frame of reference. Even for a little while, it can soothe and calm. And I think Black people need that more than anything else these days. Blackbirders Week is an event that we co-created, co-founded 
to basically exemplify um, and provide representation for Black birders, um, Black people in STEM. We really want to create the dialogue um, in, within the birding community, but also just uplift um, and enhance the black birders that already exist in the world. Birding is often seen as like this dominated by like white men. Also just nature in general is often dominated by, you know, white people in these spaces, but nature's for everybody. And we want to showcase, you know, all the beautiful black faces being able to enjoy nature the best way that they can, whether it's through their window or on a hike or something. I was just going to say that for me, if I can relate it to what nature was able to do for me, I have debilitating anxiety to where there were days where I didn't know how I was going to keep going. I knew that I wanted to keep going through my incredible therapist who has been incredibly patient but thinks outside the box with me. I found calm in gardening and plants and digging in the dirt or even just walking barefoot and grounding yourself and feeling the energy of the earth through your bare feet. And I feel as though we've become so industrialized that people are more curious about things that are man-made rather than things that are nature-made. And really getting back to that, getting back to the smells and the sights and the sounds of the birds saved me in a lot of ways. You're looking at a corner of my podcast studio right now where I'm surrounded by plants that some of them I grew just from propagation. And I just wish more people appreciated what it can give. Also activism and what that gives to the soul. And you grew up in a family which marched for racial and social justice. You grew up an activist. You yourself participated in marches against racial violence. What was it like to find yourself as the person at the center of one of those very public racist acts? Even maybe before your sister dropped the encounter on social media, that that encounter should be used to educate and empower people and change narrative. Okay, first part of your question, weird, <laughs> extremely weird to find myself at the center of. Was it surprising? Or did you have a moment where you were like, oh, this is what I've been marching for myself and I'm at the center of this? No, it, it was surreal. It was surreal. And I did not know at the time or when I came home, I put the incident on Facebook just for friends because I tend to come back from birding in the park during the spring migration. And because my friends are like, why don't we ever see you? What are you up to? I post something about some great bird I saw. This was not a great bird I saw, but it was something significant that happened while I was in the park. So I was like, okay, y'all got to see this craziness. So I put it up and it was my sister who said, or no, it was a friend who almost immediately sent me a message and said, would you make this public so I could share this? And I'm like, yeah, fine. And then my sister called me up and first of all, she was like on a rampage about what had happened and making sure I was okay. And then she was like, can I put this on Twitter? And I'm like, mm, all right, go ahead. I had no idea that it was going to become a thing like it became. That was startling and surreal. What was interesting, and I heard you say something very similar in one of the episodes of Sorry Not Sorry, was that you're right. This is the kind of thing that I have been marching for and protesting for and gotten arrested for any number of times. 
in, you know, peaceful, nonviolent protests, which is a family tradition. We have a saying that you're not a Cooper until you've been arrested at a protest. So this is the kind of thing I'd always been fighting for. But all of a sudden, these like cameras and these microphones and these phone calls and these press people, it was all getting shoved in my face. And I was like, if y'all are going to shove these things in my face, I'm going to use them to say what I think needs to be said and to get the message out and to try to move the needle in a way I think it needs to be moved. And I heard you say something very similar that what's the point of fame if you're not going to use it to try to make the world better? And that's exactly right. Exactly right. I want to switch gears for a minute and talk about your book. But I want to start by asking if you are familiar with Drew Lanham's 2013 article and also related video essay, Nine Rules for the Blackbird Watcher. I ask this because I feel like your book seems to be a bit of a spiritual successor to it. I've never met Drew in person. But we have communicated over the years, even before the incident, we'd been on some local radio show together and stuff like that, but we'd never met. But yes, he is Drew Lanham, who is a professor at, I want to make sure I get this right, he's a professor at Clemson University. And he is a professor there of environmentalism and biological stuff. Oh my God, that's so inarticulate. Maybe we should look up his exact title. But he has, for years, articulated the soul of Blackbirding. Drew Lanham refers to himself as a rare bird. He's an ornithologist, naturalist, and writer. He views conservation efforts as a blending of rigorous science and having a vision of the broader world. Lanham is among the new class of MacArthur Fellows, often called the Genius Award. So absolutely, I know him, and he is the godfather of us black birders. And what you mentioned, that nine rules for the black birder, you just bust out laughing reading them. It's like, my favorite is absolutely under no circumstances do you wear a hoodie. <laughs> and he's much like your book. It's serious and funny. And what I loved about your book is it addresses both the natural world and the presumption by white people that the natural world somehow belongs to us and the inherent lack of safety that black people experience when they're trying to access nature is something that is to be expected. Again, I don't think it's a conscious assumption on the part of white people that, oh, this is ours. They just take it for granted. And then when they see us out there, they're like, oh, wait, the world is topsy-turvy. <laughs> this Black person can't possibly be birding. What are they doing out here? And actually, no, I, I am birding, and I actually know a thing or two about the birds. So it kind of blows their mind a little bit. Of the things that I love about better living through birding is the vein of just nerd culture that runs so deeply through it. Now, you told me the story about Spock being your hero and loving Star Trek so much as a child, but what does nerd culture mean to you? What does it mean to me? Wow. I guess it's an appeal to the imagination because all the pieces of nerd culture, whether it's science fiction or it's fantasy or it's horror, all of it requires you to take a leap of imagination and to suspend disbelief. And in the process, I think it's freeing, it's liberating. You can go places that you might not be able to go to in your real life. And certainly that was true for me as a youth. In the early chapters, I talk about how as a kid, when existence got too fraught for me, I was able to retreat into my own head, into nerd worlds I would create of 
fantastical swordplay or incredible starships and stuff like that. And that kind of helped me get through. So nerd culture is, yeah, that ability to take an imaginative leap and imagine more or other. And that's really powerful. The ability to imagine other, to imagine more, because once you can imagine it, you can make it happen. And imagining more, I would assume, led you to be one of Marvel's first openly gay writers and editors, and even introduced Marvel's first lesbian character. What was that like? Tell us about that experience. Okay, just generally working at Marvel was the biggest blast one could ever imagine. It was like, for a nerd, it was nirvana. And every day was Christmas. It was just a joy. And as far as breaking barriers there, it was really interesting. Because it was the early 90s when I was there. And, you know, things had started to change, particularly in New York, more than started to change in New York. And yet the country was still in this place, and and in many ways, unfortunately, still is, and in some ways is going backwards, where there's a discomfort with queer things. And particularly in comics, there's a discomfort with queer things, because there are two misconceptions that are tirelessly repeated and ingrained. And that is, number one, that comics are only for kids. Not true. Go to Japan, they're read by adults. Go to a comic shop in the United States, and you will see a bunch of probably mostly guys, but fully grown guys there at the comic rack. So that's not true. And number two, that anything queer is inappropriate for children, which is nonsense. And it is particularly the second one that we're seeing resurface with a vengeance these days in the political sphere. The idea that any sort of mention that gay people exist, that seeing someone in drag... It's the most ridiculous thing. It's comical to me how ridiculous it is. I am waiting for, you know, in these places where they pass don't say gay laws. Now, in, for example, in Florida, they've extended it from K through 12, that you can't talk about sexual orientation. I'm like, you know what? If I was a progressive parent in Florida, I would sue the school district the second someone mentioned that a man and a woman got married, because that's discussing sexual orientation. And if you've made this law, make the law backfire on him and see how quickly that law changes. The Republican-controlled states are bringing in new measures targeting the LGBTQ community. That's Texas, where protests have done nothing to deter lawmakers. Putting a ban on gender-affirming care for young people is the focus for the latest legislation there. At least 18 states have similar bans or restrictions in place. Much like abortion access, the issue marks the deep partisan political divide in the United States. So I hope somebody does that. I can't. I don't live in Florida. I live in a relatively safe state like New York. You know, you never know these days what's going to happen next. So being at Marvel, The comic, the superhero comic milieu is filled with a certain amount of arrested development, adolescent male energy 
that's really uncomfortable with the gay thing a lot of times. But what was so wonderful about Marvel was that everyone was, you know what, we're all crazy in different ways and you do you. And that ethos permeated the place. There were so many characters there, wonderful characters, all with our own thing going on. And I kept lobbying because the two of us who were gay at Marvel had the same birthday. And this was back before HR departments really had some teeth and muscle. And they would typically have a stripper come in or something for somebody's birthday, just for a lark, for a laugh. And I'm like, bring a male stripper for our birthday, two for one. Please do that. But yeah, they didn't do it. Boy, that wouldn't happen anymore, would it? So tell us, I really like this question. What can birding teach us about ourselves? I don't think birding necessarily teaches us about ourselves, but it teaches us how to get in touch with different parts of ourselves. It teaches you focus. It teaches you connection. Oh my goodness, does it teach you connection. What I mean by that is spring is no longer, for me, a time when, oh, the flowers bloom and the trees leaf out. Yeah, that happened. But I know when the leaves leaf out. I know that the blue-headed vireo will be the first vireo back in April and that the red-eyed vireo will be the last vireo back sometime in May. And I know all the other birds that will come in between. And I know more or less the sequence of when they'll arrive. And I know where they're coming from, that they're coming from, this one is coming from Central America where it wintered where there's another culture and another language, and yet this is where this bird goes. And this bird is coming all the way from Colombia. And this little uh, uh, hummingbird has crossed the Gulf of Mexico nonstop in a single flight. You start putting all of this image together of our planet, of us, and how we fit into it, and how these other organisms fit into it. And you just, it changes your view of the world. And it's not even necessarily a conscious thing. It's not like I sat back and I said, oh, I must learn the sequence. No, it's just what happened from being out there and from experience. And you just get a sense of these things. The same thing I am a thousand percent sure happens to you with gardening. You are aware of what's going to grow when, what it needs, how to nurse it. I'm lucky enough to have a roof garden here in Manhattan. And I am so attuned to what plants are going to do what, when, and what they're going to need at what time, and keeping an eye on them, and what bugs come as a result, and what birds come to eat those bugs. So you just get this vast sense of connection. And that is, is a very healing thing to experience. And again, experience. Yes, you experience it. You see it. You see the beauty of it. But you just know it all the time in the back of your head. Good example. And this is, in addition to connection, you get a sense of time and place and yourself in it. I will be walking through Tompkins Square Park, and I will hear, hip, hip, hip. and I'm like, oh, okay, the white-throated sparrows are back. And what that means is very specific, because white-throated sparrows winter in New York City, amongst other places. To them, New York City is Florida. Come May, almost overnight, as if they got a single memo, they will take off and they will head to the Adirondacks or to Canada, where they're going to spend the summer and raise babies and have a great time. But the winter, they will be here in New York. So the fact that I am walking through the park and I hear that little tip, 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 
or that old Sam Peabody Peabody Peabody, which is their song, which they start singing more and more as spring gets deeper and deeper. And hearing that, I know I am in New York and I am is winter heading into spring, and you just get a very specific sense of time and place. Finally, what gives you hope? Oh, what gives me hope? I gotta say, people give me hope. And the reason why I say that, because as awful as we are, because we can be pretty damn awful, I'm hosting this TV show called Extraordinary Birder. And for it, I've been going all around the country dealing with birds and people and birds and the issues that arise when we meet. And the people I've met have been absolutely amazing. They take my breath away. The things they do, the commitment they've shown to try to save species, to bring people out, to enjoy the birds, to make them understand the birds. That's why the show is called Extraordinary Birder. It's got nothing to do with me. Believe me, I know the Extraordinary Birders, and it's not me. I got my strengths, but there are people a thousand times better birders than me. It's about those people who are doing those amazing things and saving the world one little bit at a time in their one little piece of the world at a time. And that gives me hope. That really sort of makes my heart burst. Well, Christian Cooper, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Excellent. You know, there are essential tools for birding. They're your binoculars, your spotting scope, your field guide. And if you're black, you're going to need probably two or three forms of ID. Never wear a hoodie, ever. The word for an African-American in camouflage is incognito. Blackbirds are your birds. Red-winged blackbirds, grackles, rusty blackbirds, brewer's blackbirds, black scoters, you claim black brant, crows, ravens, and blackbirds are largely maligned. Any bird that's black, is my bird. You know, the edge of day is lightest fading. Those crepuscular hours are the times when many birds come to life. It's such a beautiful time to bird, but if you're a black birder and you're gonna bird at night, you better be careful because you might be perceived as being up to no good. Be prepared to be confused with the other black birder. When I meet another black birder, it's like encountering an ivory-billed woodpecker, an endangered species, extinction looms. These are the rules for the blackbirder. One of the most visible faces of institutional racism has been unequal access to public spaces. Whether it's through the legal application of segregation, which dominated this country for centuries, or the more insidious de facto segregation that Christian experienced, it's an injustice which must be remedied. When the racial tensions can be used to not only threaten Black Americans, but then actually deployed against them, like what was done to Christian, 
then public spaces are not truly public. White people do not own nature. This should not be a radical statement. And yet, through so many of the power structures in this country, white people have immeasurably more access to nature than people of color. A homeowner in Massachusetts is trying to block access to a public beach near her property. Suburban housing markets, which exclude people of color, exacerbate this problem. And it has to stop. Nature is so much more vibrant than a white-only sign. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.